0: As you know, throughout this Fixer Upper sermon series, we've been drawing a lot of analogies in comparison to houses, since that's what the show is based on, fixing up houses. And so we've been drawing analogies to that and how God wants to fix up our lives. Uh, This has been a very timely sermon series and theme for me and for my family because we've been searching for a house. Uh, As you might recall, when we were appointed here, very suddenly, we only had three weeks to move. And so uh, we moved into an apartment that was or is about half the size of the parsonage we were living in. And things have gotten very interesting. We've gotten a lot closer uh, as a family, and uh, we originally had thought we would maybe stay there a little longer and, you know, get around to the house hunt, but uh, we've kind of expedited that process, shall we say. Uh, As anyone who's ever hunted for a house can tell you, it is an extremely frustrating, uh, annoying confusing, all-of-the-above type of process. Someone told me recently, I was venting to them about all my frustrations, and they said, yeah, but, you know, it's kind of fun. And I thought to myself, I better not turn my back on this person. Apparently they have some sort of mental illness. (laughs) Or perhaps their definition of fun is just extremely different than mine. Uh, You know, one of the key issues in hunting for a house is what? you will compromise on. Now, notice I did not say if you will have to compromise. I said what you will compromise on because you will compromise even if you uh, build a house. Matter of fact, some friends of ours who are in the process of building a house were at the earlier service and I was talking with them afterwards and they were even saying, you know, there's been so many delays. I don't know if we'd have done this again. If we had it to do over, maybe we'd have done this. You see, even if you design the house to your exact specifications, eventually you will wish that something was different. There's no such thing as the perfect house. And especially in our day and time, uh, there's just so many things to consider and to think about, not only in terms of what you want uh, pertaining to the house, but also in terms of the location. Now, uh, in our house or in our apartment, I should say, uh, part of what makes this confusing is that what I want and what Grace wants and what the girls want are all different things. And what we can afford is something Other entirely. Uh, I want to live on the lake, but of course that's extremely expensive. And since I can't afford to live on the lake, I want a bunch of land, but hey, I can't afford that either. Uh, But I might settle for a little bit of land in the country, you know, that would be cool. But Grace and the girls don't care about that. They want to be in a neighborhood with a pool and a playground and close to all of their various activities. And so we've been having a lot of discussions and I've spent hours, you know, in some ways the internet is a blessing because it makes life easier. In other ways it's a curse. I mean, maybe, you know, before the internet I wouldn't have known all these houses were available and, you know, probably it's not saving me time, the internet. It's probably costing me time, you know, but all these houses are available and all these different places and options and I'm considering them all and we're driving around. It's been, it's been quite the process over the course of the past couple of months here. But uh, one day I was trying to make the case for the value of living on at least a couple of acres as opposed to living in a neighborhood. But my seven-year-old, our oldest, Anna Grace, uh, irrefutably, once and for all, demonstrated the superiority of living in a neighborhood. She said, in a neighborhood, you can have a lemonade stand. Obviously real estate agents need to take cues from my daughter. I mean, who cares about a pool or a fenced-in backyard? What they should be advertising is the quality of the location for a lemonade stand. I was raised in a brick house and uh, I would like to have a brick house, but other types of siding are cheaper and it would be convenient to be close to our activities, but would it feel as at home and and on and on it goes just endlessly. Now my girls have made it clear that as far as they are concerned, the number one priority is not siding, size of yard, location. They don't really know about any of that and they don't really care about any of that. As far as they're concerned, the number one priority is that they all want their own bedroom. Right now, uh, all three of them are slammed into one bedroom. And uh, Esther Joy, our six-year-old who's over there giggling, uh, she did not know that I was gonna be talking about this this morning, but as if she had known appropriately enough, she charged into our bedroom at one o'clock this morning and announced boldly that she is done sharing a bedroom with her two-year-old sister. In case you are wondering, no. I was not able to go back to sleep. I'm not sure what time it is. I think it's somewhere around four o'clock in the afternoon. It's really dangerous to be talking to this many people and live streamed on the internet and recorded on the internet for all eternity when you're this tired. I mean, God only knows what I might say. Hopefully, the Holy Spirit will protect me on this Pentecost Sunday and keep me from saying anything too stupid or uh, heretical. Anyway... uh, Esther Joy and the kids have made it clear that their priority is having their own bedrooms. Now, they did very graciously let us know that mommy and daddy can still share a bedroom if we would like to. I told them that I hope we would like to. Uh, But I also told them I was trying to gently nudge them, you know, because I don't like to make promises I can't keep and so forth. And so I said, now kids, don't get your little heart set on that because I don't know if I can afford a four-bedroom house. Without missing a beat, Esther Joy piped up, oh, we've got our little heart, set on it all right. (sighs) Daddy will not bring that up again. (sighs) Now, you see, that's the difference between raising girls and boys right there. Uh, If I was raising a son, I'd say, suck it up, son. Sleep in the garage. Pitch a tent in the backyard. The Marines don't have their own bedrooms. Get tough. But my little girls know that daddy will give his princesses whatever they want. And so this is why God did not give me sons, you see. Uh, Anyway, you know, it's interesting. In all these discussions that we have had and in all the looking around we have done and looking on the internet and all of these things, uh, we have not had any conversation at all about buying a house without power. We have talked about compromising on siding, we've talked about compromising on the side of the yard, we've talked about size of the yard, we've talked about compromising on uh, location, on two stories or what we've talked about compromising or refinagling or various concerns and considerations as many as exist, the pros and the cons, but we have not had any conversation at all about whether or not we should compromise on buying a house without power. And no one has suggested to me, Drew, have you considered saving money by, a bi- by getting a bigger house that doesn't have power? No one has suggested that. That would be an absurd thing to suggest. It would be an absurd conversation. And moreover, it would be utterly pointless because you can only compromise on things that actually exist as real options, right? You can't exi- You can't say we're gonna compromise on that if it's not actually an option. You know, that doesn't work. And in this day and time, in the year of our Lord, 2017, in this part of the English-speaking civilized world, I challenge anyone to find a house on the market that does not have power. We have all different sorts of houses, don't we, that come with all different sizes and shapes and options and so forth. But we don't have houses that don't have power. That simply does not Exist. It's interesting to note how given power is in our society, how taken for granted it is, how fundamental it is, and how it has changed the way we live and really our conception of what it means to be a human being in ways we couldn't even begin to imagine. Now some of you uh, here this morning are old enough to remember perhaps your early days where you did not have power in your houses. Would any of you want to go back to that? Would any of you know how to go back to that, even if you could? I dare say not only would you not want to, I dare say you have forgotten how to survive without power because power changes the way we live. Power changes the way we think. Power changes our assumptions and the questions we ask. You know. Have you ever noticed when the power goes out, how much panic ensues and how quickly it ensues? I mean, even if we know for a fact that the power is gonna come back on in a few hours, I mean, we just can't handle it, you know? I mean, the food in the fridge might spoil, you know, restaurants just shut down, business, oh, we don't have power, we gotta shut down. I remember at my last church, uh, there was a Sunday where the power did come on right before uh, the service, but it had been out the night before and we had a discussion, well, will we have church without power? I said, hey, if we got the power of the Holy Spirit, we're having church. I mean, throughout the majority of church history, they didn't have electricity, and they still uh, participated in the Christian worship of God. But see, that's how we think. We think, well, we just can't function without power. That's taken for granted. It's also interesting. You know, we have a lot of fears now about terrorism, and, uh, and rightly so, a lot of terrorist activity in our world. And you know, they say that one of the things that they're afraid terrorists might try is that they might try to take out our power grid. Now, I have no idea. How our power grid works, much less how I don't know how it was installed, much less how it could be taken out. The extent of my knowledge uh, in terms of electricity is, you know, I cut the switch on. If nothing happens, I call the power company. I mean, you know, that's about it. But there are people, thank God, who are a lot smarter than me who understand these things, and they say that that is a concern, and you can see why. Because terrorists know, if they know anything, that they could bring us to our knees in a matter of hours if we did not have power. Mass chaos would break out. It's also interesting to note what an influence the various sources of power have in uh, our society today, and especially the discussion and sometimes conflict about how we should or should not generate. Uh, power. I mean, there's, uh, you know, solar power is becoming very common these days, right? I notice a lot of people have solar panels on their house. That would have been unthinkable, uh, you know, just a few years ago or almost unheard of. Not very aesthetically pleasing, but hey, it's well on the, you know, on the pocketbook, and so we like that. There's uh, wind power now out west. They've got these huge, uh, whatever they call them, where they're harnessing wind power. Of course, our community, as I commented earlier, everybody wants to live on the lake, uh, our community is more or less the defined by what? A lake that was started for hydroelectric power, which was unheard of when Mr. Murray built his dam. Uh, Of course, near us, we have some nuclear power plants and Nuclear can do an incredible thing, but also there are some concerns about safety. Coal has been uh, a great producer of power over the years, but you also have concerns about the environment. And it's interesting to note the various states where, uh, especially coal, but even the other types of power, have been traditional sources of employment. You know, those states are asserting themselves politically. So it has an influence on our economy, on our stock market, on our politics. Power is so fundamental to our life, so important, so non-negotiable, so taken for granted. You know, it's interesting to note how we would never consider going without power in terms of electricity, and yet we regard it as normal to go without power in our Christian lives. We would never consider buying a house that did not have electric power, but we regard it as normal to go through our Christian life still struggling with the same sin that assailed us 20 years ago, uh, we would think it very odd if you went into one of the big fine homes here in Lexington and you saw that they had wonderful furniture and fixtures and features and you know a great great layout and all the stuff that you'd want, and yet the inhabitants of that home were using oil lamps and an ice box. You'd think these people are nuts, and yet. Why do we not consider it as dysfunctional, as abnormal, as unhealthy, when we have people who have all the external trappings and appearances of a Christian life and yet have no power over their sins? We would panic if we lost the internet, you know? Now, I don't know about you, but if my internet doesn't come up, I'm like, let's go out of time, you know, hurry up. You know, I'm very impatient, right? But why is it that, yes, I am? That's what my girls just informed everybody. In case there was any doubt, I was not saying that just as an illustration. I am actually impatient. Okay, let's get, now we got that straight. <laughs> That's not the type of audience feedback Jeff was referring to earlier. I mean, <laughs> I want some audience feedback, but not so much, you know, critiques of my own life. Uh, but why is it, friends, why is it that we would never consider going without electric power? and yet we regard it as normative to go without the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus made it clear that in his theology of the Christian life, there is no such thing as powerless Christianity. This passage uh, that I'm preaching from this morning really fascinates me just as much as the text that Ronnie read, the traditional Pentecost text from Acts chapter two, this, this passage that immediately precedes the more familiar Pentecost passage. It's just a fascinating passage of scripture. I mean, here we have Jesus who's just been crucified and resurrected. He's about to ascend to the Father. I mean, this is one of the most important points moments in history. And he's just given them the great commission. He's just about to leave them in terms of his earthly, physical presence. He's just given them responsibility for furthering the most important message ever. In a sense, the message, the only message that really matters. And what does he say? Wait, wait for the power of the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that is absolutely uh, antithetical to what we would say, to what we would do. We'd run around frantically, right? But what does Jesus say? Wait. For the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, uh, I mean, that is just the opposite of what we would think and what we would expect. We would expect a sense of urgency, but Jesus made it clear that you cannot have authentic Christianity without the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that no matter how much time he had spent with these people, no matter how important the message was, there was no hope for the gospel to advance apart from the power of the holy spirit and yet in our churches today uh, unfortunately friends is it not the case that you know it's been truly noted this is a sad thing to note but it's been truly noted that if the holy spirit ceased to exist many christians and many churches wouldn't even notice they just go on with business as usual and yet jesus himself said wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, if we're honest, there really should be no doubt that these disciples needed that power. We're not really honest with the text a lot of times because most of us have grown up with it and you know we're close to it and we wanna be reverent and so forth. But if you just read the gospels objectively, what you will find, uh, the truth of the matter is the disciples were a confused bunch of losers, okay? Let's just get that over with, let's be honest with it. These were not, you know, sharp people, these were not networked, connected people, these were not educated, trained people. The disciples didn't get it, they were kinda of dense. I mean, here we are after the crucifixion and resurrection, and did you notice what verse six says? Is this the time that you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time, Lord, where you're going to be the Messiah we were expecting? Is this the time where you're going to conform to our paradigm of what you should have been doing? Is this the time you're going to take care of our temporal earthly needs? Is this the time you're going to be the militaristic political uh, Messiah we wanted? Is this the time you're going to get rid of the Romans? Is this the time you're going to win a popularity contest and do what people want, Jesus? Thank goodness we've got that crucifixion business over with. I don't know what that was about, but thank goodness that's behind us, and now we can move on. I mean, they still don't get it. They're still operating according to a false paradigm. They're still utterly confused by the crucifixion and the resurrection, and Jesus is about to leave. For goodness sakes, I mean, this is, you know, this is not going well. If I were Jesus, I would say, "Lord, you know, Father, can you give me some decent followers? I mean, can we get rid of these guys and get some else?" But what does Jesus say? Wait, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth." And we miss that. I mean, here's this group of losers that don't get it, that have let him down. They fled and forsook him when in his hour of greatest need. They couldn't even stay awake and pray with him in Gethsemane, but yet Jesus speaks with prophetic boldness. The scriptures say elsewhere that God speaks to that which is not as though it was. He speaks to that which is not as though it was. And we see that here that Jesus says, you're gonna be my witnesses because you will receive power from the Holy Spirit that will empower you, will enable you to be my witnesses. It's really, ai mean, it's just such a bold, prophetic thing for Jesus to say. It's such a faith-filled thing for Jesus to say. It runs so contrary to the evidence of their behavior. You know, they say that the best predictor of future performance is what? Past behavior right? Well, if Jesus was basing this on their past behavior, like I said, Jesus would fire them <laughs> say, Father, can you send me some decent people? These guys have got to go. But Jesus is not concerned about what they have been, what they are. Jesus is concerned by what he knows they can become. And how did they become it? They become it by the power of the Holy Spirit. This same group of uh, ragamuffin disciples who were so confused about the type of power Jesus was offering, the type of king he was, the type of kingdom that they were going to be involved in, this same group of disciples who wanted to sit on his right and his left, who wanted to be his vic- viceroys in what they perceived to be a wonderful kingdom, this same group of disciples was so radically changed by the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that not only did they come to understand the message of the gospel, they literally gave their lives for it. They gave their lives both in terms of their life in this planet. That became uh, a consuming passion. They gave their time, their resources, their talents, their money, and so forth. They gave their lives in that respect. There was nothing that came between them and fulfilling the will of God. But they also gave their lives in the literal sense All of the disciples died as martyrs, except for John, who died in exile in his old age. But the rest of them all died as martyrs. This same scared bunch. Peter, who denied knowing Jesus three times and who, you know, oftentimes Peter's called the rock, and frankly, he was dumb as a rock. But uh, Peter, at the end of his life, said, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. Now, that's transformation, friends. That's power. That's not the type of power of this world. That's not the type of power we can produce. This is not something that's intrinsic to the disciples. This is not something they muster up or possess or churn up within. No, this is a power that is given from them, a power that can come only from God. You know, part of the good news of uh, the gospel is that we're more like the disciples than we think or than we care to admit. Now, in some ways, that's an insult, (laughs) but it's true, isn't it? It's true, because I know I'm prone to confusion, and if left up to my own devices, if I'm really honest, I'm prone to wonder, you know, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. But I'm prone to wonder, right? You are too, we all are, that's human nature, right? We're prone to confusion, we're prone to ask, well, Lord, what's in this for me? <laughs> you know, uh, Lord, if I do this, if I step out of faith, I mean, you know, am I going to get paid back, Right? We're more like the disciples than we care to admit. And if the power of the Holy Spirit could transform them 2,000 years ago, it can still transform us today. You know, one of the, I was talking earlier about uh, all the uh, challenges we have with producing energy and the conflicts and the concerns and all that stuff, right? One of the fundamental things is the question of, will we have enough energy, right? Because we're using, I mean, you know, 100 years ago, uh, electricity was almost unheard of and now we are using so much it's inconceivable. And will we have enough? Let me tell you, friends, God has enough. God has enough. I don't know about electric power. I don't know about the future of that. I don't know about oil. But what I do know is the power of the Holy Spirit has not dissipated at all. The power of the Holy Spirit does not run out. It does not run dry. The power of the Holy Spirit uh, does not affect our uh, environment in any kind of detrimental way. The power of the Holy Spirit is not uh, something we need to worry about whether or not it's renewable. The power of the Holy Spirit is the same today as it was on the day of creation and as it was on the day of Pentecost and the promise of Pentecost, friends is that if God can transform this ragamuffin group of losers, that he can transform folks like you and I too. If he can use these people to change the world, then he can use you and I to change the world too. Now, I do wanna be clear about this, this is just in passing, I'm not gonna camp out on this too far, but I do feel obligated to say this because there's a lot of hokey pokey teaching out there about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gets, you know, uh, it's amazing what people credit to the Holy Spirit and claim about the Holy, there's all kinds of bizarre stuff. The Holy Spirit does not give you the power to be right all the time. Uh, We find this with Peter. You know, I mean, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, t- preaches this awesome, bold sermon, and thousands of people get saved. It's this great, triumphant moment. But then several chapters later, we find that Peter does not understand that in the New Covenant, the dietary restrictions and the ceremonial law are no longer relevant. And then several years later, in the book of Galatians, we find that Paul says Peter still had a few problems with that, even though God had given him this powerful revelation, a vision, I should say, in Acts chapter 10, you see. That's just one example I'm picking on Peter because everybody picks on Peter. But um, you know, that that's just one example. There's many examples like that that we see throughout the New Testament where the disciples are continuing to figure it out and continuing to articulate it. And we see that throughout church history, don't we? That even some of the great giants of the church or all the great giants of the church, have not been right about everything. Nobody's right about everything, right? So there's, sometimes you hear that kind of teaching. Well, if, if he or she was really filled with the Spirit, then they couldn't possibly be wrong about this. They couldn't possibly hold that. Well, I've known a lot of holy, mature Christians, and some of them were proven wrong about some things. The power of the Holy Spirit does not give you the power uh, to have this wonderful, amazing life with no problems. In fact, if anything, what we find on the pages of scripture is that the Holy Spirit gives you problems. (laughs) The Holy Spirit gives you problems because all of a sudden you realize I can't live for myself anymore. All of a sudden you realize, you know, I just wanna be nice and all this, but you know what? I have been given this burning passion for souls and I've gotta share the gospel and people might not like me, but I'm more concerned about their soul going to hell than I am concerned about what they like about me or don't like me. But before the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life, You don't have that problem. You're just free to get along with everybody. Before the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life, you don't know that it's wrong to spend all your money and time on yourself. But the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, and all of a sudden, it gives you problems. (laughs) Because it gets your attention, and it calls you, man, I don't want to give my time and money. But you know what? God won't let me go. You see? You see? And there's a teaching out there, unfortunately, it's very popular and influential in America. This could only happen in America, by the way, that if the Holy Spirit uh, is alive and well in your heart, you won't have problems. You'll be blessed. You'll be rich. I mean, go preach that in a third world country. I mean, that's, that's going nowhere fast. That's why I say that nonsense could only fly in America because that's, that's that's how we think. And we intermix sometimes uh, our cultural sense of blessing with our Bibli- with our Christianity. But on the pages of Scripture, we don't find that. We don't find that. We find that the Holy Spirit descended and all of a sudden the disciples radically changed. Their priorities were changed. They weren't concerned about blessing of this world. They were concerned about the blessing of the next world. You see what I'm saying? Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit gives you the freedom to conquer your sins. The Holy Spirit uh, gives you that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that hunger and thirst for more of God, that sensitivity and awareness to the things of the kingdom. You know what I'm talking about when you you talk with somebody and you know, man, this person is spiritually alive. They're alert. They're aware. They're listening to God. They're they're mindful of the presence of God. They're wanting to serve God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It, It turns you on in a sense like electric power. It it gives you that longing. Lord, can I be a little bit holier today than I was yesterday? Francis Asbury said, I wanna be a little bit holier this hour than I was last hour, and a little bit more alive to God today than I was yesterday. That's the Holy Spirit, friends. It fills you up, it wakes you up, and it gives you this passion to go onward, always onward in the Christian life and see what more can I do? Lord. Where are the places still in my life that I've not confessed my sin? Where are the nooks and crannies of my soul where I've not allowed your light to shine? What are the places that are displeasing to you where I've not fully surrendered to your lordship? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. My New Testament professor, the late, great Bob Mulholland, was fond of drawing a distinction, and I'll never forget. It's one of those moments frozen in time for me in class. It changed my understanding in a lot of ways of the Christian life. I'll never forget this, because when he first said it, I said, what? You know, one of those kind of moments. He was fond of drawing a distinction between being in the world for God and being in God for the world. He said, you know, we tend to think what you want is to be in the world for God. You know, to be God, you know, to to, to work for God, to serve God. He said, so "That's good, but the problem with it is, you can still be for God on your terms, like an employee with their employer negotiating the contract. You know, Lord, I'll represent you as long as these things go well in my life. I'll represent you nine to five, Monday through Friday. But on Friday night, I want to party a little bit. <laughs> you know, I'll I'll be in the world for you, you know, to a certain extent. But if this happens or this comes along." I might need to renegotiate or think this through. But being in God for the world means that there are no terms, there are no limits, there is no holding back, there is no if this happens, there is no negotiation, there is only absolute surrender. It's not just I'm your representative sometimes, it's not just uh, you know I wanna speak for you sometimes, it's, it's being lost in the love of God, living out of a sense of awe, at who God is, a sense of holy reverence and awe, not a sense of, well, God, you're okay, and so, you know, I'll sort of serve you and try to tithe, but being just lost and wrapped up and not even worrying about it. (laughs) Just being totally God, all in. Uh, Our old Wesleyan covenant service in the early days of Methodism, this was a, a big deal. We don't use it much anymore. Kind of archaic language, but it says it well. It says, Lord, I will not stand upon terms. I will not stand upon terms. There are no terms. I'm not going to say, you know, if, when, uh, under these conditions. I just want to be in you, God. I want you in me. I want to be lost in your presence and your purposes. And we see that with the disciples, don't we, After, after the day of Pentecost. I think that's a great way to describe it. No, they're not perfect, but you don't find them saying, now, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? You don't find them confused, staring up into heaven like, what do we do now, you know? Uh, after the day of Pentecost, they're wrapped up in this thing. They're willing to die for it, and they do die for it. They're, there's not a, a sense of, you know, we might go back. If Jesus says we can't sit on his right and on his left, there's a sense of this is all that matters, and I want to be all in. I want to give all that I possibly can. I want to be all completely, totally God. So that's what it means for the power of Pentecost to fall and for us just to be lost in God for the sake of a lost world. Lost in God for the sake of a lost world. An utter surrender of ourselves. Uh, an unselfconscious, unaware surrender and abandonment of ourselves. Totally, absolutely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the power of Pentecost. You know, earlier I talked about how electric power has transformed our lives and our culture, one of the things we miss about technology in general, but electricity in particular, especially since so much technology is uh, impossible without electricity, one of the things we miss is that electricity uh, is not just additive, it is transformative. It is not merely additive. It is transformative. For example, you might say, hey, before electricity, you know, we could not keep food refrigerated, so that has now added a refrigerator to our house and to our lives. That's true, but it has also transformed the way we cook and the way we eat and the way we shop, and it has transformed our abilities and our sense of limitations and how we relate to the world, right? You know, I mean, the electric light enables us to stay up later. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't just add to the life we already had. It fundamentally transforms life as we know it, right? You know one of the problems in the church with our view of the Holy Spirit is that we try to make it additive instead of transformative. Lord, what can you add to the life I already possess? What can you add to the life that I still want to be in control of? And we ought to be saying... Lord, I'm totally yours. I just want to be a a feather on the breath of God, as Francis Finland said. (laughs) I wanna be yours without limitation. I want you to transform me. Don't just add to the life I already have, God. Grant me a new life in Christ. Don't just add to the decent, (laughs) respectable heart that I have, but transform me and give me a new heart and a new mind. The Holy Spirit is not merely additive is transformative. It don't want to just add to the life we already have. The Holy Spirit wants to truly turn us inside out and upside down and transform us. That's the power, friends, of Pentecost. And Pentecost, friends, is not supposed to be just a day on the church calendar. It's not supposed to be just a worship service. It is supposed to be an incarnate reality every day in the Christian life that each and every day we would seek to be more full of the Holy Spirit than we were yesterday, that each and every day we would seek to be more surrendered than we were yesterday, that each and every day we would not say, Lord, I know you filled me at my baptism, I know you filled me last year when I had that mission experience, Lord, would you fill me today? Would you meet me where I am today? Would you help me overcome my sin today? Would your power be experienced in my life today? May Pentecost, friends, happen in your life and in mine right here right now, today, tomorrow, and all the days of our life. Earlier I said that my girls have their hearts set on having their own bedrooms, and I wasn't sure whether or not I could afford a four bedroom house. Not only is it acceptable for us to get our little hearts set on the Lordship of Jesus Christ having us more, not only is it okay for us to have our little hearts set on the fullness of the Holy Spirit taking us. Not only is it just, you know, something we might want to consider to get our hearts set on that. Friends, it is imperative that we get our little hearts set on the Holy Spirit having us. It is necessary. It is non-negotiable. It is absolutely essential in the Christian life that we would get our little hearts set on having more of God and being more his. Our Father can definitely afford it. Lord, we thank you for the fullness of who you are and the reality of the gospel and the holy privilege of just being involved in this work. We pray, oh God, that your Holy Spirit might fall afresh on each and every heart in this room. May we be empowered by your Holy Spirit to go forth with kingdom priorities and to be your witnesses in our local community, in our state in our nation and even to the remotest part of the earth. Amen.